marital disharmony, a lot of uh, struggle with lust, masturbation, pornography, and outright sexual immorality, some dishonesty among us at work, some real deep anxiety about the future, some profound feelings of inadequacy, even to be here, some real loneliness. Some guys here don't know anybody hardly and are wondering how the weekend's going to go. And so I want you to come and release us to love each other and to help each other and to get deep into each other's lives. I pray that my few thoughts will be a catalyst that the Holy Spirit would be pleased to use to accomplish things that no human can accomplish, things that humans have tried to accomplish in our lives for years, decades perhaps, and have not yet been accomplished. And so, Lord, I I ask that you would do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that I have been able to ask or think, that you would come, that you would heal, that you would encourage, you'd empower, that you would release from bondage, that you would open heaven and reveal Christ to us and his ways with us and his love for us. Just this morning, some of us read, Behold, what manner of love the Father has shown unto us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. So, Lord, I pray that you would help those of us who are children of God to see the wonder of it and feel the wonder of it tonight. And if any is here who is not yet united to Christ by faith and adopted into the family, grant that truth would hold sway and that love would abound and that the Spirit would draw And that everyone would go home believing, saved, adopted. So give guidance now, Lord, and help us to know how best to use these times together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Somewhere in in the book on missions, I say, you will not know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. You will not know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. Somebody gave me the title for this time together, Men at War, Pursuing an Undistracted Passion for God. And I love the title. It's a great title. So let me spend... Uh, a few minutes setting the stage with this idea of men at war and the biblical foundations of thinking that way, that we are at war. In what sense we're at war, okay? First Timothy 6.12, and I'll just walk through a few texts. There probably won't be time for you to look them up, but if I want you to linger over one, I'll I'll have you look it up if you brought a Bible. If you brought one and it's back at the cabin, bring it tomorrow when you come. We might be using it. I hope we are. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul says to the younger man, Timothy, 
Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight. There's a good fight, brothers, to be fought. Not There are bad fights to fight. We're not to be a, a, a mean-spirited group of people who pick fights. We are to be fighters of the good fight. Namely, the fight of faith. The good fight of faith. Meaning, whatever it takes, whatever roughhousing, whatever shrewdness, whatever tactics, whatever strategies it takes to build faith in our lives and the lives of people we care about, that's the fight we'll fight. So take it down that the warfare we're in is primarily a warfare against unbelief. That's why I preached the series years ago called Battling Unbelief and then wrote Future Grace based on it. I don't think Satan is the main enemy. Uh, I think he's the second main enemy. I'll tell you how I pray with my wife at night. Get down on our knees and very often... I use four S's that I pray against. And I'll pray them in the order of their importance against me. Guess it what number one would be. Sin. I pray against sin. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from sin. Sin is the only enemy that will damn you at the judgment. Satan can't damn you. That's number two. What would you guess number three? None of us wants it to come to our families, though it often does. Sickness. Nobody will guess number three. And I only say it because it begins with S. Sabotage. And what I have in mind there is somebody breaking into my house and hitting me over the head. Or burning my house down. Or persecution. And only persecution doesn't begin with S. So I say, Lord... In my warfare with my wife tonight, I pray that you would protect her and Abraham and Benjamin and Karsten and Shelley and Barnabas and Talitha from committing sin. That's my number one concern for my family. Number two, protect them from Satan. He can rough them up. He can beat them up. He can tempt them and lead them into sin. But it's a sin that's terrible, not Satan. He can make them see green things on the room at night. He can make them have terrible dreams. He can lead other people to persecute them. But he can't condemn them and destroy them. Sin can. So lead us not into temptation. Don't let us sin. Guard us from Satan. Heal Talitha's. Took her to the doctor today. She's got these sores all over the inside of her mouth. And and he says, oh, there's some kind of thing. And it just runs its course. Heal that. And we cry out for... Little Greta over there who's in a coma in Abidjan right now. We cry out for Patty every day and we cry out for sickness all around us that God will deliver us from that third enemy. And we cry out for protection in hard neighborhoods or in hard mission settings. So we are in a warfare, but our main enemy is sin, which is rooted in unbelief. Unbelief, which we'll come back to later. 
Paul said in 2 Timothy at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So he he had three pictures. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course like an athlete, and I have kept the faith. And I think those two are simply images. The fight and the race are images of keeping faith. You have to fight to keep it. You have to run to keep it because it's not an automatic. Faith is always trying to get away from us because Satan is always sifting us. Like it says there in Luke 22, Jesus said to to Peter, you remember, Satan has asked that he might have you, that he might sift you like wheat. What does that mean? I think that means take your life and take the the grate of the sifter, and squish you through it. Now, what is this grate designed to pull out of you once you fall through? Faith. So, And then he says, so I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. So it's faith that comes out when Satan tries to squish us through this grate. And you fall out on the other side like sand. I used to, I used to work for a swimming pool building company. My job all day long in 90 degree heat in South Carolina was to shovel rough sand onto a piece of screen. So it would fall through fine enough so that it would go into the cement mixer. And I was in good shape at the end of that summer. And I learned that you can get things out. And every now and then I take it and throw all these rocks out. And that's what Satan asked to do to you, you guys. He wants to do that this weekend probably. He's been doing it this week with all kinds of circumstances. I'm going to sift them like wheat. I'm going to sift them and just push them through this thing. And Jesus prays for you. He did for Peter. And he said, when you have turned, in other words, he knew he's going to stumble. Three denials. When you have turned, strengthen your brethren. So fighting the good fight of faith is something you do all the way to the end because Paul said, now I'm on the brink of being poured out and I fought the good fight. And I just wanted to say a word about finishing well. I think a lot about dying these days because of how many people are threatened with cancer. I see John is here and his dad is back in the hospital, was yesterday, he's out now, right? And and just what what's what's going to happen? How's, how's it going to go with Roger and John's dad? How's it going to go with Patty? How, how long does Patty have? And Raise your hand if you got somebody you love who's got cancer. Raise your hand. Okay? But a fourth, people that are close to you with cancer. Another thing, I should have said diseases maybe besides cancer. But my, when I think about this at Bethlehem, I think about finishing well. I want to finish well my life, whether it's early or late. I want to finish well. I want to fight well. And I just need to encourage you that to have been saved a while back or yesterday is the beginning, guys, of the battle, not the end of the battle. It's the beginning of the battle. 
not the end. And you need to know that. It's encouraging to know it and it's discouraging to know it. Encouraging to know that we're not in the battle alone and discouraging perhaps that you're not going to make it to the end if you don't fight and not grow weary. Daryl is in Bangkok. I pray being worked on by God four years now, separated from his wife because he left and went into prostitution. And he's living there now and Wendy's at our church. His wife would pray for Daryl to repent and come back. He was a missionary with the Baptist General Conference, a very effective one, learned the Thai language beautifully, and sin triumphed in his life. And he's come back two or three times in the meantime, and we've gotten together. And I've looked at him and I said, Daryl, what is it? What happened? And one of the most telling things that he said to me was, with regard to sexual temptation, he said, all through college I had it, this battle, and I just got tired of fighting the battle. That's the way he put it. I just got tired. It wasn't, it just wasn't worth it. So a blindness came over Daryl's eyes and stopped looking like it was worth it. So his two little kids are growing up without him. <laughs> Can you believe that? His beautiful, loyal wife of four years separated. Waiting, willing, willing to work on reconciliation. That isn't worth it yet. I mean, that's a blindness of a very profound kind. And brothers, we must fight that like crazy. Because it can come suddenly, alone, in a distant city, the red light district nearby. Or it can come slowly, slowly, slowly with just a little more aggravated pornography each time. you got to fight for faith. There was a homosexual person in our church. We have numerous ones. Some may be here who struggle with that. The struggle is not the problem. It's the caving that's the problem. And he was here with us, struggling for several years. And I just was told a few Weeks ago that he's just thrown it in and gone back to the life style, which is no life. So I'm real keen on uh, fighting the fight to the end, finishing well. There's a text real familiar to all of us from Romans 8 that puts this finishing well in a very peculiar context. I want to to say it for you. You know this. Maybe beginning at Romans 8.33, where it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised from the dead, who intercedes for us at the right hand of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then count these now. Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. I'll come back to those in a minute. As it is written, we are being counted like sheep to be slaughtered. What's that next phrase? I left one out right there. For thy sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted like sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all things we are more, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither uh, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, take those seven things, warriors, and Think about finishing well. How are you going to finish your life? Hopefully all of you will have a long life. But in a room this size, it's almost guaranteed all of us will not have a long life. Finishing well means keeping the faith, holding fast to the goodness of God, relying upon him, trusting Christ for the forgiveness for all of our sins and for carrying us through whatever pain there is and without getting angry and rejecting him and throwing in the towel and saying, if this is the kind of God you are who's letting me die early, then I won't have anything to do with you. How how are we going to end? And those things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, Peril and sword. Now, just pick pick some of these middle ones out and think about it. Famine. Have you ever thought what it feels like to starve to death? Famine will not separate us from the love of Christ. What's the point of saying that? Unless he really held out the possibility that you might die from lack of food. In fact, many of you will die from lack of food. Your throat will swell up so bad they can't give it to you anymore. Nakedness. What's that? Back in the... uh, I don't remember the timing of it, but I checked it out in in my Schaff's Herzog religious encyclopedia just to check out the facts. During a time of persecution, there there were 60 or so very devout Christian people in a time of persecution, in the winter time, And the enemies of the church, I should have the details for you, but I, I could get them because I know where it's found in the book. But I don't, but I know the thing that I remember. They stripped them naked and drove them out onto a lake, frozen in the wintertime. Surrounded them with weapons and just held them at point until they froze to death. So there's nakedness. Shall nakedness separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says no. Peril. That's probably some kind of very cataclysmic, dangerous situation. Now, the question I'm asking you is, how will it be like to finish the fight of faith there? When you're so cold, you're losing your mind. Or when you're so hungry, you're being eaten up from the inside and it hurts so bad, you're retching and nothing is coming up. And it's not, it's not heroic, clear-minded, Christ is all. It's just agony. And I think the only, the only way will be a lifetime, a trajectory of having fought well. And it may be that you will, you will be so tormented in the last hours that your own mind will not function adequately to lay hold on any promises to rest in. And somebody will have to do it for you. And may we do that for each other. You know, one of the things I'd like you to go home able to do is help people die. 
Don't run away from the sick. Don't run away from the problems. Let's be the kind of guys who not only fight well for our own faith, but help others fight well. When you don't know what to say, you don't know what to say, walk into that situation and say, Father, I don't know what to say. Bring to my mind some thought. or, And he may say, you don't need to say anything. Put your hand on their arm and sit quietly for a minute. We must help each other die well, live well, fight well. We are men at war. So there is my um, initial overview of the justifiability of this title that we have, Men at War. Now let me set the stage for tomorrow morning with a few more texts, and then we're going to break up into little huddles and pray for a little while for each other. And Please uh, get to know each other here. There's some of you here who probably think you're the only person who doesn't know anybody. Well, that's not true. I don't think I know half of you. <laughs> and so we're all in it together here, and I'm so thankful they thought of these, and so don't don't find the one person you know and walk over there. Find people you don't know and ask questions about where you work and where you live and you ever shot a deer or <laughs> whatever guys are supposed to talk about. <laughs> Roadkill. <laughs> but then if you're not a typical guy, talk about, well, I won't say it, but. Just feel free to be non-typical. Fighting for passion. That's what the theme is about. Fighting for joy. Fighting for satisfaction. Fighting for hope. I believe all those are part of fighting for faith. And so I want to give you some texts on those and just sow the seeds of how you fight. How you make war on unbelief and on lack of passion. Some of you come up here and you see that word passion or you come to Bethlehem and you hear that our affirmation or our big mission statement is we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And you're saying inside, I don't feel like a passionate person. I'm not a passionate person. It's not my personality to be passionate Person, at least not like I see John preaching or whatever. Now, that's probably okay. It might not be okay, but it's probably okay. Depending on whether you mean I'm incapable of loving God deeply. If that's what you mean, that's bad. If what you mean is my personality doesn't get loud, that's no big deal. Okay? So passion can run very deep, very strong, very quiet. And it can run very shallow and very loud. So don't measure your passion by my personality or anybody else's in the room. Measure it by what you see in the Bible as the depth of affection that we are able to have for God through whatever personality we're wired with. And it'll more or less affect your personality some, but... Probably not much. That's okay. So let me just give you some 
some texts on this whole issue of battling for zeal or passion, joy, satisfaction, hope, and just share with you uh, how I, I fight some, and then we'll work on that some more tomorrow. When we see from some of these sheets where the battle is being fought or where the battle is being lost most frequently. We'll take some of those things up tomorrow. Take um, passion. In Matthew 24:12, it says, because... Wickedness is multiplied, the love of many will grow cold. Because wickedness or lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many will grow cold. Now that's why we're having this retreat, to help that not happen to you. We must learn ways not to not allow the, the lawlessness that most of you work in. Most of you rub shoulders with people who could care less about God. And they're not even thinking about becoming passionate for God. They're thinking about becoming passionate for a woman or bragging about the number of beers they can put down or bragging about whatever. They're so far. And, And how easy it is, the Bible says, for you in that milieu to grow cold. They're already cold, and coldness spreads. You put a nice warm thing in the icebox, it'll freeze. Unless you get a little wire running in there with a little coil inside, making it boil. That's what we are for each other. That's what the Bible is. That's what this weekend is, a little wire into your little icebox with the coil hanging in the coffee of your heart so that it doesn't freeze over into a coffee popsicle. And you become useless for God. I've never met anybody who wants to lick a a coffee popsicle. (laughs) But it seems like everybody in Minnesota is inclined to drink hot coffee. And so if you can maintain your hotness as coffee, then you will be drunk. And we want people to drink our lives and be made awake, which is what coffee is supposed to do. Well, not everybody is going to grow cold toward the end of the age. Because just two verses later, in Matthew 24, 14, it says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And believe me, in this world, where Muslims are yet to be reached, and Hindus are yet to be reached, and Pakistan who's ready to blow your brains out with an AK-47 if you work for, what was the company? Whatever. Whatever, you know, the guys who had the picture in the paper today, they just sprayed the car and the driver and the four Americans were killed. Now, missionaries know that could happen to them. I just read the story of the Wheaton graduate, 34 years old, working for the Christian Reformed Church in Quito, Ecuador, very soon after Danny died in his plane crash back in September, was with his wife and two children, and they went out into the country 
He saw something he wanted to photograph. He got out with his two little children. He started photographing. Four armed men approach. They say, give us your camera. He gives them the camera. They say, give us the keys. He says, you can have the vehicle. Just leave the family. They get in, make the family move. The, the kid, and he's got one kid in his arms, to the back seat. He sees they're going to take his wife and kid away. He moves toward the car. They shoot him four times in the chest. The boy, he falls over. The wife pushed out of the car. I mean, in the scuffle, she escapes. They drive away. And there she is left with a dead husband and two kids in the middle of nowhere. And everybody who does missions knows that's a possibility. Now, cold people don't do that. Right? Cold people don't go to Pakistan. They move to the safest possible neighborhood imaginable. And put as many locks on the doors and stay away from as many troubled people as they can. Only people who are red hot for eternity are going to finish the Great Commission. So I know that when it says, because lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many will grow cold. It doesn't mean everybody. It doesn't mean everybody. And my life is devoted to making it mean as few of you as possible to grow cold. That's what I'm devoted to. To spreading a passion, a zeal, a hotness for the glory of God. Your calling may not be missions, but it may be. Or it may be right there in your suburb when you hear some strange sounds or some screams next door. You don't go into your basement and call 911. Only you go out. You check it out. You take some risks with your life so that people can see you've got a hope somewhere other than in the world. And they'll ask you the next day, what's the ground of your hope? What, what are you hoping in? You live like this. I mean, you, you came right into this house when you heard the screaming and the pop, 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 pop. You could have been shot. Well, I just had to. I mean, somebody. Joy is a piece of this thing. I was just focusing on passion or zeal. Let me focus for a minute on joy. I'm a big one for joy. And I I uh, I was down in Macon, Georgia, talking on Future Grace last week. And I said very candidly to those 300 people or so who were gathered there about why I write on joy. I said, Everybody who writes books on overcoming something is because they struggle with it. How to overcome pride. Well, there you got a person who wrestles with pride. Well, I write books on how to be happy because I'm not a very happy person. By nature, I am a melancholy person. I mean, listen to all of my Advent poems. <laughs> Fifteen years of agony. I mean, there's always a... Death. And this year there's going to be deaths. And misery. It's because that's... So I I want to be happy, but I don't want to be glib. And I don't want to be facile. I don't want to be trivial. I don't want to be trite. And I don't want to be these rah-rah kind of Christians that paste a smile on and just say, praise the Lord anyhow... I don't want to be that way. I, my vision of joy is a real, it's real 
deep. And it's real big and it's more like, you know, Mount Everest than Buck Hill. There's a, I want joy to be significant. And I know that that takes work for several reasons. In 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. Workers with you for your joy. Which means joy takes work. It at least, let's, let's be more specific. Joy in God takes work. I suppose joy in television takes no work at all. Flop. That's all it takes. Push a button and flop. Or nowadays you can flop and push the button. That takes no work at all. And by the end of the night, you're relaxed and you've had some laughs and you've been titillated by about half a dozen sexy commercials and you've been tempted to covetousness by 12 reasons for getting what you do not need, but you feel a little relaxed. So that kind of joy takes no work at all. Neither does the work of pornography take any work at all. Or, you know, a lot of just cheap joys take no work. They're cheap because they don't take any work. Joy in God, or even joy in the moon that we saw out there just a little while ago, trying to get through this snowy weather. To look up and pause and feel that that was the moon that Shakespeare looked at and the moon that Calvin looked at and Jonathan Edwards looked at and Paul and Moses and Adam. Adam looked at that moon and soak in the stability of the solar system God made for us or the beauty of the night sky. That takes some work because by nature we don't do it. We're going home and just grumbling about how cold it is or slippery the roads are. Rumble, grumble, grumble, grumble. It takes no work to grumble. It takes work not to grumble, but to fix your eyes on something beautiful like your wife or your child, even if they disappoint the daylights out of you because of something. That takes work. Philippians 1.25, Paul says he's struggling with whether he's going to die and go to heaven or whether he's going to stay. And he says, I know now that I will stay because of the advancement and joy of your faith. The advancement and joy of your faith. My ministry, he says, is for the advancement and joy of your faith. That was the text I preached on my first Sunday at Bethlehem. I said I wanted Christ to be magnified. That's verse 20. And I got down to verse 25 through the advancement and joy of your faith. And it's still my watchword. I want to so minister to you. That you advance in the joy of your faith. Satisfaction. First zeal, passion, then joy, then satisfaction. And these are all things that have to be worked at or fought for. We're still on war. Minute war. War to be zealous. War to be passionate. War to be joyful. War to be now satisfied. And just the prayer from Psalm 90, verse 14. 
Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in you all our days. I wonder, brothers, when you get up in the morning, if you pray that prayer. Do you take a little time, find a little time away alone and and pause and say, Father, satisfy me this morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you all my days. You see, satisfaction in God is not automatic in the morning. It's not automatic in the morning or any other time of day, but especially in the morning for some non-morning people. So where's it going to come from? It's going to come from the answer to that prayer. We've got to fight for satisfaction in God. Remember George Mueller, the owner or runner of the orphanages in England a hundred years ago, who is known for his answered prayer? He said that he began to have his devotions by trying to pray when he got up in the morning without the word. And finally he gave up and began to read the word and turn that into prayer because, he said, his mind would wander if he didn't. And secondly, I have to, he said, find or get my heart happy in Christ before I meet anybody or I am of no use to them. And that's right. If you go to the breakfast table and you're just as sour and sad or discouraged or grumpy as you were when you went to bed or worse, how are you going to bless your family? or your roommate, or your friends, or whoever. How are you going to be a minister to them? We've got to fight for satisfaction. We do it by prayer, and we do it by the Word. Let me, let me take one more. Hope. Zeal or passion, joy, satisfaction, hope. I think one of the second messages I gave was probably on a Sunday night near the beginning of my time, 17 years ago at Bethlehem. Uh, and it resulted in that big sign going up on the side of the 1914 building out there as you come east on 8th Street. You drive in. What does the big sign say? I'm glad you've seen it. Sometimes things can be so in- present they're invisible. Hope in God. Anybody know what psalm that comes from? It probably comes from more than one. You're right. The one I have in mind is 42. In Psalm 42.5, and I... I remembered it in those early days. I can't tell you how scared I was coming to Bethlehem. I'd never been a pastor before. I was 34 years old. I'd probably preached 20 times in my life. I'd never done a funeral, never done a baptism, never done the Lord's Supper, never counseled anybody with any serious problem, and they hired me. I couldn't believe it. Because I, I had taught up till that time, just taught, you know, simple, straightforward, healthy 18 to 22-year-old students and they never had any major problems. At least they didn't come to me with them. And so my experience was squeaky easy up till that point. And uh, I thought, I knew the Lord called me to, to the ministry, but I thought it would be to a nice, small, rural church where I'd learn a few things. And maybe someday the Lord would take me to an urban setting with a larger downtown church. And that was not other people's ideas for me at all. And so they they called me. And, and the, I mean, you got to know that Though I may look like I've got it all together, 
I grew up scared to death. I could not speak in front of a group. I've told you this story before. I've written it down in two of my books, especially in Future Grace in the chapter on anxiety, I think. If you want to read my story and how awful it was in detail. Um, had to take C's in my civics class because I wouldn't give oral book reports. Couldn't give oral book reports. My mother took me to a psychologist back when there weren't any Christian psychologists back in the early 60s. And... Uh, and he told me it was my mother's fault, and I got so mad I, I walked out and wouldn't ever go back because I love my mother and didn't believe him then, don't believe him now. I don't know what the problem was, but I was just incredibly nervous. My throat would close up, my shoulders would begin to shake, and I couldn't talk. You know, some, some of you say, I'm nervous when I get up in front of a group. Well, yeah, but you, you do it. My son Abraham says, I'm so nervous when I get up in front of a group. I said, well, I can't see it. You don't have any problem like I had, like I had. And that stayed there. I can remember speaking in larger settings at Bethel and looking down and my shirt was going like this. And I wondered, oh, my, am I losing it? Am I going back to where I was? Because the Lord really did a work when I was in college. But anyway, all that to say, I came to this church very uh, full of misgivings and many battles with anxieties. And therefore, as always in my life, it was the same thing when I went to Germany in 1971. I was so scared. I didn't know any German. I didn't know what I'd do when I'd get off the plane. I didn't know how I was going to find my way to a motel or how to pay the bill or order breakfast. I mean, just, oh, I'm just, mm, I am Mr. Anxiety when it comes to those kinds of cross-cultural situations or whatever. And, and the Psalms live in those settings. They just bust with life for me. So I get alone with God in those early days in 1980, 81, and just hang on the Psalms. And especially in those days, Psalm 42, 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. And I read in Martin Lloyd-Jones in this book, Spiritual Depression. I recommend this book to you. We, if we don't have it in our bookstore, tell Rick and we'll get more of them. I assume it's still in print. Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's especially from the Psalms. And he takes Psalm 42. I was, I didn't know that until later. I was using it myself. Listen to how he says. Now this is, this is a major Warfare strategy that you should take home from this retreat. Namely, talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. I'll read you what he means by that. And he's, he's saying it in response to Psalm 42, 5. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man, namely the psalmist in Psalm 42, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? He says. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? 
If you do not, or do you know what I mean? This is Lloyd-Jones talking to you now. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have had but little experience. In other words, if you have not preached to yourself that way from the scriptures, talking truth back to yourself as lies are being spoken. And don't don't blame all this on Satan. Let's not demonize sin. Satan has his little role to play in the world, and it can be excruciating and horrible. But most of the bad messages in our minds are not coming from demons. They're coming from our flesh and our old man. John Piper is plenty bad to handle most of the tapes that are going off in my brain here. And the other new John Piper, who's got the Holy Spirit and he's being renewed from one degree of glory to the next by looking to Jesus, has got to preach to that old John Piper. And he's got to preach with power. And sometimes he has to cut off his hand and gouge out his eye, Jesus says. You've got to get tough. you got to make war. That's why those of you who said self is the first S, that was not a bad answer if the self is understood as the old sinful self, the old fleshy you. And so we must make war. 